three primary symptoms of psychosis. It's hallucinations, delusions, and behavioral disturbances. Hello, this is Al Levin, the creator and host of The Depression Files. If you enjoy the podcast and have found value in the show, please check out my Patreon page. There, you'll be able to support me financially with as little as a dollar a month. Your support will help me offset the cost of the podcast hosting site, maintain and update my equipment, and support the amount of time that it takes in order to produce the show. You can find my Patreon page at patreon.com slash thedepressionfiles. That's Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash thedepressionfiles. In addition, it would help me out greatly if you could take a minute to rate and review the show. Thank you for considering to support me in these ways. And now, to the show. Welcome to The Depression Files, an interview format show in which you'll hear stories of men who have struggled with depression and or other mental illnesses. In addition, you'll hear deep dive conversations with guest experts on various topics related to mental health. Topics such as depression and other mental illnesses, medication, suicide awareness and prevention, our current mental health system, and of course, the stigma that surrounds mental illnesses. I believe that both sharing stories and educating people are ways to chip away at the stigma. I'm your host, Al Levin, and I want to thank you for tuning in. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to The Depression Files. This is Al Levin, your host. And I am really excited. Tonight on the line, we have Dr. Steve Lamberti. Dr. Lamberti is a professor of psychiatry at the University of Rochester Medical Center, where he serves academic chief of the community division and as chair of the Research Subject Review Board for Behavioral and Social Sciences. Dr. Lamberti received his MD from the University of Missouri and completed his, psych- his psychiatry residency and a neuropsychiatry fellowship at the University of Rochester. He is a distinguished fellow of the American Psychiatric Association and board certified in general psychiatry. Dr. Lamberti, welcome to the show. Thank you, Al. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, I'm really, really excited about this topic of psychosis. It's one that fascinates me. I have had several folks on the show, some of the listeners may know, who have dealt with psychosis and psychotic episodes, but never have I spoken to a doctor who researches on the topic and knows the topic at such a deep level like yourself. So I'm really excited. And, And the other piece I'd like to add, which is really what spurred me on to do a deep search to find you, was that just about six months ago, for the first time ever, after advocating around mental health and mental illness for a very long time, I actually was in the midst of dealing with a person on multiple occasions who was going through a psychotic episode. So it really spurred my interest, and I'm I'm really excited to have you on the show. Well, thanks. Really a pleasure to be here. And I think this topic is relevant to many people that are facing the challenge of mental illness. So uh, thank you for doing this podcast and uh, looking forward to chatting. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much. My first question is, if you could just give the listeners a definition of the term psychosis. Well, if we break the word down in 
there are two words wrapped up there. One is psyche, which means the mind, and the other one is osis, which means disease process. So literally, psychosis is a disease process which affects the mind. But that's a pretty broad category. That's a huge category. Isn't it? Right. So here's the best way to think about psychosis. Some people think that psychosis is a disease, but technically speaking, it's a syndrome like fever. We don't think of fever as a disease. We think of fever as a symptom that is caused by many diseases. So we know that you can get a fever from COVID. You can get it from heat stroke. You can get it from the common cold. Psychosis is the same way. It's a constellation of symptoms with many different causes. A lot of things can make a person psychotic. You can see psychosis, of course, from mental disorders like schizophrenia, but also neurological conditions like certain seizure disorders or brain tumors. Alzheimer's disease is often associated with psychosis. You can see psychosis from endocrine diseases like hyperthyroidism. You can see it from head trauma or infections of the brain. You can see psychosis from heavy metals. Um, Let me give you an example. Do you remember the book Alice in Wonderland? Oh, yeah, of course. Yep. So John Lewis Carroll's famous novel, there's a character called the Mad Hatter. And why the Mad Hatter? Why was this person kind of showing unusual thinking, unusual behaviors? Well, in the early 1900s, hat makers used to make hats by taking animal pelts and impregnating them with mercury, which made the animal hides more malleable, and they could shape these into fabulous hats. But they were absorbing mercury through their skin, and that is a known cause of psychosis, hence the enduring image of the Mad Hatter. So my point here is that many things can cause psychosis. So that's the first thing I want to communicate. Right, which is really, really new to me. Um, I, I never really thought of so many different things that could bring upon a psychosis. So that's really fascinating. Yeah, to me, it's really ironic that psychosis is so heavily stigmatized. When you look at the way psychosis is portrayed in the media, they really make it sound like anybody who is psychotic probably has a mental illness and they're probably dangerous. Right. And really nothing is further from the truth. Many things can cause psychosis. Um, In the 1930s, before we had human subject protection, they were doing experiments with amphetamines. And what they found by giving increasingly high doses of amphetamines to college students was that anybody can become psychotic if you have the right um, bump on the head, the right toxin, the right heavy metal, the right infection. Um, So I think of psychosis as an equal opportunity problem that can affect anybody. Right, right. And does a psychosis that is brought upon one by all of those different variables look the same? It does look the same. That's part of the challenge for psychiatrists and doctors. 
when somebody comes to the emergency room and they're showing the symptoms of psychosis, which I'll talk about in a minute, um, when somebody presents in that manner, doctors usually do a lot of tests. Um, they will draw blood. They will get CAT scans or x-rays. They will take careful histories. They will check a urine for substances. They're looking under all of these different rocks, looking at all these different causes, which can cause psychosis. And unfortunately, schizophrenia, which is a leading cause of psychosis in terms of mental disorders, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So part of the frustration for people that are facing the challenge of schizophrenia is there's no lab test or no neuroimaging test which will tell us that this is caused by schizophrenia. You have to rule out all those causes I talked about a minute ago. And then if you can't find any of those causes, you start to be concerned about the possibility of schizophrenia as being the cause of psychosis. Wow, um, that that is really incredible because like you said, you just rattled off so many different possible causes. And then to know and understand that there is no definitive way to know one has schizophrenia other than ruling everything else out. It makes me wonder if people are diagnosed with schizophrenia who may have been missed on something and would would their eventually, if they were misdiagnosed, could it be discovered later? And would they have psychotic episodes in the same kind of manner, like if they're monthly or, I mean, they're probably all triggered by different things. Well, let's get into the diagnosis of schizophrenia. And that'll get us into the symptoms. So first, unfortunately, it's a diagnosis of exclusion. So you have to make sure that there's not a brain tumor, that there's not toxins, that there's not heavy metal poisoning, uh, that there's not a viral encephalitis, that there's not Alzheimer's, that there's not hyperthyroidism. You have to make sure that long list of causes are excluded. Once you do that, then you're looking for a certain pattern of symptoms over time. So you are looking for the presence of psychotic symptoms. So the three primary symptoms of psychosis, first, there are hallucinations, which are hearing or seeing things which aren't there. Auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations. People can also have tactile hallucinations, feeling things on their skin that are not there, They can also have olfactory hallucinations, which are smelling things that aren't there. But the most common psychotic symptoms are auditory or visual hallucinations. So you have to have that for diagnosis of schizophrenia. Also, we tend to look for what are called negative symptoms. So psychiatrists will call psychotic symptoms positive symptoms because something is added to the person. So somebody with psychosis is hearing your voice, Al, but they're also hearing voices that aren't there. So that's a positive symptom. Psychiatrists will also look for negative symptoms like high school math. It's like the process of subtraction. Negative symptoms involve the loss of motivation, loss of concentration, 
loss of the ability to experience pleasure, loss of the ability to convey emotion. So that's another type of symptom that doctors look for. They will also look for functional impairment. So there are many people uh, who hear voices, um, often for spiritual reasons, and they're fine. They are not impaired in any way. With a diagnosis like schizophrenia, there's almost always functional impairment. So you're looking not only at positive and negative symptoms, but you're also looking at a deterioration in the previous level of functioning. And then there are some other clues that psychotic disorders like schizophrenia tend to occur in young adulthood. So you start to put together this constellation of symptoms and function and patient age, and that's when you start to more reliably diagnose schizophrenia. Right, right. You know, a couple of pieces that I didn't hear you mention that I'm curious about is delusions and how delusions may differ from hallucinations and whether they often accompany a psychosis as well as paranoia. Excellent question, Al. So I mentioned that there were three symptoms, primary symptoms of psychosis. The first one, of course, hallucinations. You've just raised the second one, which are delusions. So delusions are firm, fixed beliefs, not perceptions. You're not hearing or seeing or smelling something. It's a belief, a thought, firm, fixed beliefs that have no basis in reality and that persist despite clear evidence to the contrary. So let me give you an example. Here in Western New York, I'm a Buffalo Bills fan, and personally, I think they're going to win the Super Bowl this year. Now, some other sports fans like Maybe Patriots or Packers fans might think I'm delusional, but I'm going to continue to believe that until the Super Bowl rolls around. And if my team is not in the Super Bowl, I will be disappointed and I will let go of this fantasy that the Bills are going to win it all. When somebody's delusional, they do not let go of their idea. It persists despite evidence to the contrary. So common delusions, you mentioned one, and that's paranoia, being overly suspicious. I want to point out that being overly suspicious is sort of a normal condition that most of us experience now and then, Right. you know, just depending on, you know, how much sleep you have or what traumas you've experienced in the past and so forth. But with a psychosis, the paranoia takes on a delusional proportion. So it's not simply being overly suspicious. It's having a belief that something impossible is happening, like the aliens are reading my mind. And and again, these are culturally bound. So if you belong to a group which um, worships aliens, you're going to feel like that's a normal situation. Right. So that's another challenge for psychiatry is trying to uh, understand the person's cultural context. If somebody is deeply religious, a person of faith, they may often feel moved by the spirit. They may feel or hear God's voice. That is completely culturally appropriate. But somebody who is atheist, 
who never spoke about religion, if they're now feeling that they are Jesus Christ or that they have the power to work miracles, unless they can work miracles, that would be called a delusion. So those are sort of paranoid and grandiose delusions. That's another category when people feel that they have special powers or abilities that other people do not have. Right, right. And, and, you know, I could give an example of paranoia with the person that I mentioned that I've been dealing with that was in the midst of a psychosis who was sharing with several of her friends that she believed somebody had been in her apartment and she was really concerned. She felt like Somebody had been in her apartment several days in a row when she was not there. Her friends were really concerned, helped her get a camera and so forth. And then suddenly, a few days after that, she started accusing them of being in her apartment and um, asked one of them, like, what do you think of my grocery list on my refrigerator in kind of an angry tone? Yeah, that's a really excellent example. Uh, You know, again, it's not unusual to get home after a a full day of work or maybe a week of vacation and to kind of have that Goldilocks feeling like somebody's been sleeping in my bed or someone's been eating my porridge. But, you know, usually uh, in, you know, um, there's an explanation. Yeah, there's an explanation. Oops, looks like the dog was on my bed. You know, when you see the reality, you usually drop it. But somebody who's paranoid, in spite of evidence to the contrary, they're going to continue to have Um, a delusional belief. Now, the third psychotic symptom category, it's disturbed behavior. Um, If you are hearing things or seeing things that aren't there, if you're having firm, fixed beliefs that have no basis in reality, sooner or later, those are going to affect the way you behave. So many people who are psychotic will respond to the voices or the delusions that will change the way they behave. Um, you know, the, um, you know, kind of a stigmatized image is somebody wearing the tinfoil hat because they're feeling like it's protecting them from cosmic rays. What's more common when somebody is experiencing a psychotic episode is that they lose control of their emotions. You know, All of us have good days and bad days. We all get upset at times, but we can usually rein it in, you know, once the situation is resolved, once the crisis, which is precipitating our feeling upset is over, uh, we will quickly regain control. But people who are in the midst of a psychotic episode, they will often lose control of their emotions so that they may be highly agitated Uh, to the point of actually requiring restraints uh, for the safety of themselves and others. Sometimes when people um, are um, highly uh, paranoid, especially if they're using substances, that's a potentially lethal combination. Those individuals um, may feel the need to strike out if they feel like they're in danger. They may want to strike first. So occasionally, if somebody is psychotic, and particularly with substance use tossed in, uh, it can lead to agitated and violent behavior. But that in general is the third category of psychotic symptoms, hallucinations, okay. delusions, and behavioral disturbances. Right, right. 
And I'd like to just point out, you mentioned earlier how typically a, a person living with schizophrenia is not a dangerous person, right? Because you did mention, and I know you're saying on occasion, and it's probably pretty rare or involves substance abuse, but you mentioned, you know, having to restrain them with physical restraints and things. So I don't want listeners to suddenly have this image of somebody with schizophrenia being violent and dangerous, but it, but clearly it can be, it can accompany it. That is correct. It's just unfortunate that Hollywood uh, and the media have kind of seized on these pretty rare events right. and they've portrayed it in a highly stigmatizing manner, which makes it sound like everybody who's facing the challenge of mental illness is a dangerous person. Yeah. The reality is most violence in our society is caused by people who are not mentally ill. Right. If you look at mentally ill people as a group, they actually have higher rates of victimization. Yeah. Um, so I, I want to be very clear about that. But the reality is that when you lose control, that may mean that you are endangering yourself or others. For instance, if somebody's psychotic when they're driving a car, that can be a perilous situation. Right. But right. the reality is that um, we have antipsychotic drugs which treat psychosis we do not have a single FDA-approved medication for negative symptoms. So the real challenge for most people who are facing schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder or one of the psychotic disorders, the challenge for them is less about psychosis and safety and more about not having any energy, being socially isolated, uh, struggling with school or employment, and really being need in need of rehabilitation. Right. So that's often the challenge which is faced by people with psychotic disorders that are due to an illness like schizophrenia. If it's due to something like a toxin or a heavy metal or an infection, once you treat or remove those causes, the person is A-OK. Right, right. Yeah. So you've mentioned, you know, as far as mental illness goes, you've mentioned schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. And by the way, I have some men who have are living with both of those different diagnoses on the show if people want to look in, at some of the past shows. But I'm wondering if there are other mental illnesses that are often or may be accompanied by a psych psychotic event. Another great question, Al. So I've mentioned schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. Two other common mental disorders which are occasionally associated with psychosis. One is bipolar disorder, and the other one is major depression. So bipolar disorder, bi, like bicycle, uh, means two, and polar, like the North and South Pole. People who are facing the challenge of bipolar disorders, they have episodes where their mood becomes distinctly elevated, and during times of mood elevation, which are called manic episodes, occasionally people will experience psychosis. And then those periods of mania can alternate with periods of severe depression. And also during periods of severe depression, people can sometimes experience psychotic symptoms. So you can see it with bipolar disorder and also what psychiatrists call unipolar depression, that is a mood which only goes one way and that's down and then back to normal mood. 
Right. And, you know, I've had some folks on the show who have had are living with bipolar one disorder, which have the the really high manias, as I understand it, and the depressive episodes that you mentioned. How does one distinguish like a really high mania from a psychosis and or or are they similar and do they overlap? And I I mean, I've heard of people doing things like all of a sudden they woke up and they were in Las Vegas because they went gambling and they had never gambled in their life, but they flew to Vegas for gambling um, when they were in the midst of a mania is how it's been described to me. Or somebody who's never been on a motorcycle decides to go out and buy a Harley while they're in this manic episode. Yes. So that's the thing to understand is that Psychotic episodes happen gradually. It's not like flipping a switch for most people. That that can happen, uh, particularly when psychosis is due to trauma or a medical cause or a toxin. But for bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or major depression, we typically see a gradual process. So if we take mania as an example, Most people that have bipolar disorder that are beginning to have a manic episode, they'll first start out feeling normal, just another day in the office. Next, they'll notice increased energy. So they'll just feel a little bit sharper, a little bit more on their toes. During this early phase of mania, people are often highly productive because they're sleeping less, their concentration is better, they're more energized, and then they'll move from that state into one where they're feeling a sense of urgency, like I don't have time to sleep, I have too much to accomplish, I am on the verge of something important, of making a meaningful discovery, I've got to keep at it, I'm getting closer. And then they'll go from that stage where they're overextending themselves and not sleeping. That's when you start to see the psychosis creeping in. That, oh my God, I've made a discovery. I am a special person. I have powers. I've always known it. Everybody stand back and behold me. I've got to get in my car and show the world. And that's when you'll start to lose control. But it's a gradual process. So a lot of the work that people with... um, bipolar disorder or schizophrenia or major depression, a lot of the work they'll do with their, with their counselors, with their therapists, is learning to spot early warning signs so that you can intervene early and prevent a full manic episode. But again, it's a gradual process. Right, right. Wow, that could eventually, without treatment or medication, lead to a psychosis, it sounds like. Yeah, absolutely. But it doesn't always lead to psychosis. It's important to understand that when anybody is not feeling well, whether you have a mental illness or not, you don't call the doctor first thing. The first thing you try to do is to cope with it. So many people who have bipolar disorder or major depression or schizophrenia, they become very, very good at spotting their own early warning signs and coping So often people will know that, oh, I'm getting that kind of energized feeling again. I know what this means. I've been through it before. Let me see what's going on in my life. Is there something that is stressful that's precipitating this? Maybe I need to take a little time off work. 
Maybe I should call my doctor and have an early appointment. Um, you know, maybe I should get some exercise. You know, maybe I need to watch my nutrition a little bit more closely. That's all about coping skills. And often people are able to prevent relapses just through their own personal coping. Right. Um, but if coping is not effective, that's when people often call the doctor and need professional help. Yeah. So another mental illness that I have heard recently, somebody told me, and they were not a medical professional, but they believed that borderline personality disorder can sometimes be accompanied by a psychotic episode. And I'm wondering about that piece. Yes, that's correct. So borderline personality disorder, uh, it is in a different category than the three illnesses we've been talking about, uh, you know, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, and major depression. Those are generally thought of as being psychotic disorders because psychosis is commonly associated with them. Um, and those are viewed as brain diseases in a way. Uh, we know that there is a neurochemical basis for these illnesses that we can target with psychotropic medications. Now, personality disorders as a category, examples being borderline, which you've mentioned, narcissistic, antisocial, those disorders are thought more to be a result of a person's upbringing. They're often associated with early childhood trauma. It changes the way people view the world, how they feel about themselves, how they feel about others. So people with personality disorders will have an enduring pattern of maladaptive skills. Uh, for instance, one of the common symptoms in borderline personality disorder is called splitting. And that's the tendency to see people as being either all good or all bad. And often that relates to early childhood experiences where you were surrounded by very good or very bad people. Right. Um, but for most people with borderline personality disorder, most do not experience psychotic episodes, but some do. Okay. So some people, uh, when they're really stressed and their coping skills break down, they can begin to develop delusions. They may experience hallucinations. But those episodes are typically a little bit shorter, more transient, briefer than the type of psychotic episodes that you'll see with what doctors consider one of the psychotic disorders, gotcha. like schizophrenia. Right. What is it possible for somebody to have one and only one psychotic episode that, you know, maybe, maybe doctors, it's just kind of unexplained? So, Al, here is one of the challenges that's facing the field of mental health today. We know from a variety of research studies that perhaps 10% of people, let's look at everyone who's psychotic. If you rule out all those people that have cerebral infections, head trauma, toxins, uh, stimulant-induced psychosis, uh, Alzheimer's, if you go to the emergency room, remove all of those people, now you're just left with that group that you're thinking, okay, 
This is probably one of what we call the mental illnesses. Okay? If you look at that group of people, Al, we know that approximately 10% of them that are having a psychotic episode, they will never have another psychotic episode. About 10%. Wow. The problem, Al, is right now, as of 2020, we don't know how to identify those people. We just know that it's not caused by one of the known medical or neurological causes. So it's probably what we would call a mental disorder. But everybody looks the same when they're psychotic. It's like everyone looks the same when they have a fever, right? So there's just no way of knowing yet which of these people in the emergency room, which is having a psychosis, really needs pharmacotherapy because 10% don't. So the American Psychiatric Association at this point is recommending that anybody that has a psychotic break that is not due to a known medical or neurological cause, anybody like that should have antipsychotic medications for a period of one year, after which you have the discussion about how, you know, there's a 10% chance that you don't need this medication. I've had that discussion with patients before, Al, and I've had a number of them say, good riddance, I hate this stuff, take me off of it, and let's see how I do. And I've had others that have told me, doctor, what happened to me was the worst experience of my life. I don't mind these medications. I don't want to take the chance. So it's really up to the patient and their health team to kind of decide whether what we call maintenance pharmacotherapy, which is taking medications for life, just like a person with diabetes takes insulin for life. Is that appropriate? Or is it better, since that person's only had one episode and nothing else during the year, is it better to slowly taper off and stop the medication and just watch? Because we know there's approximately a 10% chance that they probably do not need maintenance pharmacotherapy. So that's an active area of research. Wow, but, that's really fascinating. I did not realize that. And then is is the one psychotic episode, if it is a person who does not need pharmacological intervention or anything, do is it just written off as an unexplained episode then? It's not written off. You know, it's it goes in a person's medical record along with you know, any bout of flu or appendicitis or, you know, COVID kind of becomes part of your medical history, but it just sort of sits there and gathers the dust of time as long as it doesn't come back. Um, So I remember um, the first time I ever had a patient who um, just had one episode. As a psychiatrist, I tend not to see those patients because they typically don't need treatment. So you might see them in the emergency room, but many patients, you know, once they leave the emergency room, they don't seek mental health treatment. And for most of them, you know, the psychosis will come back, but there's 10% that they're fine. So we usually don't see them in treatment. But I remember years ago in the 1980s, when I was very early in my career, I was treating an individual who had a very severe a psychotic episode, and uh, one where he set himself on fire. And so I was 
very concerned that, oh my goodness, this is, you know, very serious and this person should be taking medications for a year. But this individual just calmly told me after he recovered from the episode that he really felt in his heart of hearts that he didn't need medications and he'd be happy to continue to come and see me, but he didn't feel like he needed medications. So I spent the next 20 years <laughs> treating him and pretty much every time I would meet with him, I would ask him about medications and kind of suggest that maybe it's a good idea, but he was right. He never wow. needed medications again. And since that time, because that was decades ago, since that time, we've learned a lot more that there are people like him and probably 10% yeah. have a first break of real legitimate psychosis, but that's all they ever get. Wow. 10% seems like a really large number to me. Like, can you put that into perspective? Because it's true, is it not, that only about 1% of the population ever get diagnosed with schizophrenia? Yes. And I have to say, in the interest of full disclosure, that I'm giving you my opinion about that 10% figure. Okay. Because it's based on research, which is okay research, but not great research. Yeah. The problem is it's not ethical to do the sort of study you would need to do in order to find out what the actual annual incidence of or the prevalence rate is of people that don't need medication. You'd have to take everyone who is having their first psychotic episode, make sure it's not due to a medical or neurological cause. You'd have to take all of those people and then randomly assign some you get medicines and some you do not get medicines. Right. And because you know that you'd be depriving most people that need medicine, you'd be depriving them of medicine. It's not ethical to do that type of a randomized study. But that's the sort of thing you would have to do to right. really prove what the incidence is. So we kind of look at... The data that we have from emergency rooms, from epidemiological studies that were done uh, before medications became available, you know, those sources, in my read of the tea leaves is that it's about 10%, gotcha. but I'm sure there are experts that are listening and are thinking, Dr. Lamberti's not up on this. It's <laughs> actually 13% or it's right. more like seven, but 10% is a good round number. Yeah. So to put it in perspective, 1% lifetime prevalence of schizophrenia. So you look at the population of the United States, 300 something million, 1% will develop schizophrenia in the course of their lifetime. So schizophrenia is not rare. It's a lot more common than Alzheimer's. It's more common than multiple sclerosis. It's more common than muscular dystrophy. Wow. Yeah, so it's not it's not a rare condition. But, you know, if you think of all the people that are psychotic, it's going to be even more than that. You know, 1% is just the people that get a firm diagnosis of schizophrenia. If you look at all of the people that develop psychosis, it could be five times as many. So right. just take 10% of whatever that number is. Yeah. Wow. And what about... I don't know if you'd have this information. It, it, originally, when you mentioned, you know, major depression, sometimes being accompanied by a psychosis, it kind of surprised me. But actually, when I think about all of the men who I know through my support group and so forth and advocacy work, I, I don't know if anybody has described what they've been through 
as a psychotic episode, but I'm thinking back to some of the stories I've heard where they clearly were in a psychotic episode. I think an example of psychosis that we sometimes see in depression, and I want to be clear that most people with depression do not experience psychosis. In fact, most adults will experience some depression in the course of a lifetime, whether it's bereavement from loss of a loved one or loss of job. You can imagine how people are feeling right now in uh, Southwest Florida after the um, hurricane. Yeah. So most people that have depression don't have psychosis, but for those that do, again, it's usually a gradual process. So most people will start out feeling pretty normal. Then they'll notice that there's a loss of energy. They'll kind of um, feel like they're just not, you know, on the ball. There may then be feelings of sadness, feelings of despair, kind of a lot of guilt, a lot of, you know, self-criticism. You know, then as it continues, some people may feel so terrible that they don't want to get out of bed. Then if that continues, often people will just feel like the world is black. Everything I look at, it's like I'm wearing dark glasses. And it can progress to where people feel like it's that way because of me. That, you know, maybe I'm the cause of everything that I'm seeing because I can feel it. Maybe I'm the cause of wars or I'm the cause of disease. And they'll start to develop what psychiatrists call uh, egocentric delusions. So in other words, not grandiose, I've got superpower delusions, but really negative delusions that match the depressed mood state. So feeling that they are contaminated or feeling like they are the cause of diseases or the world's ill. Those are the sort of delusions uh, that we'll sometimes see with, with major depression. Right. What, uh, are you able to get into it all? Like what is happening in one's mind? You know, when I was working with dealing with this person who was in a psychotic episode, I just kept, sometimes this person would go in and out of thoughts that made sense when they were speaking. And it was really interesting to me. And I just kept thinking like, what is happening in one's brain and is there a, a fairly simple way to describe or explain what's happening? So my area of expertise focuses you know, primarily on schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. So I, I'm probably a little bit more familiar with some of the current thinking. But one point I want to make about all of the disorders that we've talked about, the psychotic disorders, whether it's schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, or major depression. I want to be clear that currently diagnosis is based on what researchers call phenomenology, which is just a fancy word for clinical signs and symptoms, stuff that you can see. So if you look at the book that mental health professionals use to diagnose mental illness, it's called the DSM-5, Diagnostic and Statistical manual, uh, fifth edition. If you look at the diagnostic criteria, anybody who's listening, who's curious about how do mental health professionals diagnose these psychotic disorders, just get that book, look at the criteria, but they are all things like depressed mood for a certain period of time, loss of energy, um, decreased ability to concentrate, loss of appetite, disturbed sleep, 
presence of hallucinations, presence of delusions. What you will not see are any criteria that relate to what researchers call etiology or pathophysiology. Etiology is just a fancy word for the cause, and pathophysiology is a fancy word for the disease process. For instance, if we look at um, the disease of AIDS, um, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, if you just look at the symptoms, um, AIDS was very confusing for healthcare professionals because some people with AIDS had skin cancer. Other people with AIDS had pneumonia. Some people with AIDS had dementia. So it looked like a lot of different diseases. But the etiology or the cause is the HIV virus. And the pathophysiology is that virus attacks the body's T cells and the body's immune system. So it makes you vulnerable. So we understand the whole disease of AIDS, the etiology, the pathophysiology, and the phenomenology. For psychotic disorders, the only thing that we're really good at right now is the phenomenology. I predict within the next 10 years or so, we're going to see diagnostic criteria which relate to etiology and pathophysiology. And this gets back to your question of what is the cause of psychosis? So again, I'll, I'll answer that you know, more so for schizophrenia, because it's something that I'm more familiar with. Right. But, you know, the current thinking is that schizophrenia is due to something in the environment in a genetically susceptible person. So, for instance, we know that more people with schizophrenia are born during the winter. Most people that are born during the winter do not develop schizophrenia but we know that the incidence of winter birth is much higher. So the thinking is, hmm, there's probably something in the environment. Maybe it's a virus, or maybe it's lack of sunlight, or maybe it's cold. But if you're genetically susceptible to those things, that can result in psychosis. We also know that there are other environmental risk factors, like living in an area with heavy air pollution or being born in an urban area. Um, we know that for some people, exposure to cannabis can be a cause of psychosis. Most people that smoke cannabis do not become psychotic, but some people do. So they're genetically susceptible. So the current thinking is something in the environment is affecting a genetically susceptible person. Now, what's vexed researchers is when you look at those causes, well, cannabis, air pollution, the winter, I mean, those are different things. That's like a drug and uh, a toxin and a temperature. Like, how can all those be causing psychosis? Um, so a real breakthrough in our thinking happened in the 1980s with something called the neurodevelopmental model of schizophrenia. And it was kind of the first theoretical explanation about what might cause psychosis. And in that theory, what the uh, inventor of the theory, Dr. Daniel Weinberger, pointed out was it doesn't matter what environmental cause is at hand. It matters when it happens and where it happens. So what Weinberger was suggesting was that 
the process of schizophrenia begins perinatally when somebody's still in the womb. That's where they're most susceptible because their brain is developing. So if they get exposed to a toxin or if maybe they get exposed uh, through um, uh, a mother that's smoking cannabis while she's pregnant or uh, if um, they're both being exposed to air pollution. And if that unborn child is genetically susceptible, then you can begin to see damage to a certain area of the brain. We call that area the dorsal lateral prefrontal cortex. It's the front of the brain that allows us to think and plan and strategize and, um, and reason. If that part of the brain gets damaged, the theory is that it's kind of a silent lesion until sometime after puberty. When we go through puberty during our teens, we change physically, but we also change neurologically. That's when our brain fully comes online. That's really the difference between children and adults is children's brains aren't fully online yet or adults are. Well, if that area of the brain that's been damaged um, at puberty, it's supposed to sort of come online. And if it's been damaged, what's hypothesized is that the brain tries to repair itself. It's a little bit like if you break one leg, the other leg gets stronger. If you have a damage to that part of the brain, another part of the brain tries to compensate. Only the part that's trying to compensate, we call that the limbic system. And that's a part of the brain which has to do with being able to control your emotions, associating memories with emotions. It's where you begin to have perceptions and those perceptions are colored as this is a good voice, this is a scary voice. That part of the brain becomes overactive. And so it's felt to be the cause of psychosis, at least in people with schizophrenia. Um, so you have one part of the brain which is underactive, which is where you get the negative symptoms, and a part of the brain which is overactive, where you get the positive symptoms. Um, that part of the brain that's overactive, it involves a variety of neurotransmitters. Right now, there's a lot of interest in what are called catecholamines, like dopamine and serotonin, and also um, yeah. other, other neurotransmitters which are very common uh, in the brain, like glutamate. So a lot of research looking at those neurotransmitters, whether it's depression in psychosis or depression in schizophrenia, because ultimately those are the neurotransmitters that we need to target with our medications. Right. That seems like a a fairly controversial topic, even within just, just the field of depression, whether or not there is this so-called chemical imbalance and whether or not antidepressants are actually doing anything much more than a placebo. Yes, I think that for many people, it is a placebo effect. Um, you know, in my experience, whether it's an antidepressant, an antipsychotic, an antibiotic, or an anti-neoplastic, um, a chemotherapeutic drug, whatever medication it is, in my experience, there's some people that respond really well, and there's some people that do not respond. So for people that are taking antipsychotic drugs or antidepressants, and those drugs aren't helping them, those drugs are kind of barking up the wrong tree, like maybe those drugs are targeting serotonin and the problem's really dopamine or acetylcholine, 
for those folks, often it is a placebo. We know that in schizophrenia, 25, 20 to 25%, that's a lot of people, that's like close to a quarter, do not respond to standard antipsychotic drugs. So I, I think it's, we're probably on fairly safe ground when we realize that the brain is the most complex organ in the body. Right. And that it runs on neurotransmitters. Uh, actually, hundreds of neurotransmitters, peptides, proteins, cofactors. Uh, it's really an area of science which is unexplored, a little bit like the universe at large. You know, it's, there's still a lot to learn about the brain. So most of behavior, I think it's safe to assume that it's mediated in some ways by neurotransmitters. And it's important to understand that as biological organisms, we're all in equilibrium with our environment. So it's really a two-way street. The environment affects us, we affect our environment. So just because somebody's depressed does not mean that they have a, quote, chemical imbalance, unquote. It may be a completely normal response to an abnormal situation. Again, think of what's just happened in Florida. Uh, any of you who have lost loved ones, you've, uh, you've probably experienced a depression. Uh, for me, as a psychiatrist, I really had not experienced depression until I had a significant loss in my life. And it was very eye-opening. There was no doubt in my mind that it was affecting my brain uh, neurochemistry, but I didn't feel a need to pathologize it. It felt like I'm really going through something in response to a real loss. So I think we have to be careful about pathologizing depression. It's kind of a human process. And the question is not so much, is it a disease or not? The question is, how can we help it? We're actually finding that a lot of non-pharmacological treatments, for many people, they're more effective than medications, like cognitive behavioral therapy, which really helps people identify some of the automatic thoughts that they might not be aware of that are leading them to view themselves or the world in a certain way. And by challenging those thoughts, people often gain a brand new perspective, which can be helpful in fighting depression. Right, right. Wow, fascinating. You know, one thing I, after finally, you know, for the first time ever dealing with a person in a psychosis, it was interesting to me because I know the person really believed their delusions and believed all of their thoughts around the paranoia and so forth. I'm wondering, do people ever realize that they are in the midst of a psychosis? And what can loved ones do to help them understand and realize that they are experiencing a psychosis or they're acting in a psychotic way? For family members who are helping a loved one cope with psychosis, I would strongly recommend that they reach out to NAMI, National Alliance of the Mentally Ill. NAMI has a wonderful program called Family to Family, which is a 12-week curriculum taught by families for families. And it really gets into how do you help somebody who's having a psychosis? Um, what's the best way to help them cope? How should you cope? 
I, I wanted to toss that out there because I'm a big fan of many of the advocacy groups that are out there. Yeah, NAMI uh, is NAMI. Yeah, NAMI is fantastic, and they oftentimes have various offices in lots of different cities. Yep. Um, we have one right here in St. Paul. Ah, well, getting back to your question about insight, that's the word that mental health professionals use to talk about whether somebody knows they're psychotic or not. When somebody's in the middle of a psychosis, gosh, 90% of the time they don't know it. Um, it's a little bit like your ears. You know, you can't see your own ears. You know, everyone else can see them. Unless you look in a mirror, you can, you're in the middle of it, you know. That's the way psychosis is. You can't see your own psychosis. Uh, you're in the middle of it. You're being swept away by it. Other people are going to see it. Now, once the psychotic episode is over, I think a good half of the time, people really get insight like, whoa, okay, I see what happened um, and I don't want that to happen again. So let's look at the early warning signs and let's learn how to intervene early, about half the time. But the other half of the time, people will have a condition that's sometimes called anosognosia, which is just a fancy word for not knowing that you have a mental illness. So unfortunately, some people that have psychotic disorders, particularly like schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, they do not know that they have an illness. Once the psychosis is gone, they will look back on it and they'll feel like, I didn't need to be in the hospital, you know, my mom called the police, you know, she doesn't love me, I'm okay. Um, they won't develop insight quickly. And so in working with those folks, one of the things we really want to help them do is learn from their lived experience. Because it's one thing to rationalize a psychiatric hospitalization if you've only been in the hospital once or twice. But if you've been in the hospital three or four times, a pattern kind of emerges. And so a lot of the work that we're doing is to help people see that pattern. Because if they can see the pattern, they can fight the pattern. They can interrupt the cycle. So helping people gain insight is, is really important. I remember the first time I, I encountered this. Again, this is when I was in training back in the early 1980s. I remember that I was just in my first year of psychiatry residency, and on the inpatient service, I was treating a patient uh, who was a lawyer, and this patient also had a psychotic disorder. And once the patient got uh, better and was ready to leave the hospital, uh, the patient who was a lawyer suggested that we do a Ulysses contract. And I'd never heard of that before. And what the lawyer told me was, look, doctor, I know I have a psychotic disorder and I know that I lose insight when I get psychotic. So while I'm of sound mind, I would like to give my mental health team permission to treat me over my objection. Because when I get psychotic, I'm going to object to treatment. I'm going to think they're the problem. Right. Right. And I don't want to have to go to the hospital again. So I want to give my care team permission that if I start to get psychotic, that they can treat me instead of me refusing treatment and ending up in the hospital or, or, or possibly worse. So insight is really important. 
and it's a goal of treatment to help people establish that. Right. That's huge. But what about, you know, coming back to a loved one, and I know you did talk about resources such as NAMI, but do you have a suggestion? Like, this person, I wanted to tell this person who I was dealing with, like, hey, look, you're, you're going through clearly, like, a, an, a psychotic episode, and I would love to help you, and you really should see your doctor and so forth, but I didn't dare say that because... I didn't know the person that well, and I didn't know what type of reaction that might bring on. Is it good or is it bad to try to talk them out of that psychotic episode? What, what's your take on that? So it's, it's very hard to talk somebody uh, out of a psychotic episode. Most people, when they're in the middle of the psychosis, it's just very real for them. Right. So... There are some guidelines that are called the family guidelines. Uh, these are guidelines that I think you can get through NAMI. And in working with families, we put these guidelines on refrigerator magnets that we can give families to take home and kind of put on their refrigerator. These are a set of principles that have been shown to promote recovery among people that are dealing with psychosis so let me give you some examples of, um, of some of the family guidelines. Uh, one uh, is to give each other space. So if somebody is delusional, you know, they think that their mind is being you know, monitored by aliens, rather than try to talk somebody out of it, let them have the delusion. Um, you know, you, Often, I think families, it's natural. And I went through this as a medical student. It's natural to try to talk people out of delusions. It's tempting. You know, when somebody says something that's so obviously wrong, you, know, you just get this feeling like, well, I can fix this. I can talk them out of it. Right. Yeah. But what happens in a family, it, you know, when you've got a mother or father that's kind of, you know, trying to talk you know, a young man or a young woman out of their delusions, you know, they'll often feel unheard, like, mom and dad, you guys don't get me at all. You know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm going to get suspicious of you. And, and then the conflict starts to, to happen. Right. And, and one of the things we know about psychosis is that stress makes it worse. It's like sugar makes diabetes worse. Salt makes hypertension worse. Stress makes psychosis worse. So by teaching families that it's okay to give them space, you don't have to talk them out of it. Let the mental health professionals handle that, but keep the level of conflict lower. That's um, one of the family guidelines. Right. Another family guideline is to set limits. So everybody needs to know what the rules are. So it's one thing to say that I feel like like the aliens are communicating with me, you know, it's an, you know, they're communicating with me through the television. It's another thing of somebody smashing the television or starting to behave in a way that's, that's threatening. So helping families learn kind of what limits to set, what to tolerate, what not to tolerate, uh, that can also be helpful. Uh, another guideline is to carry on business as usual. Often in a family system, when a loved one develops psychosis, whether it's a daughter, a son, 
a mother or a father, families would typically circle the wagons. They'll start to spend a lot more time together. They'll get very protective and they won't do the things that families need to do to stay healthy. Often what I'll see is that families will stop going on vacations. Uh, you know, if it involves a, a son or a daughter, parents will stop going out on dates. Um, they may withdraw from their church groups or their faith communities because they're embarrassed, they're scared. Um, so one of the family guidelines is to carry on business as usual, even though it doesn't feel natural to go out to dinner when you know that your son or daughter is coping with psychosis. It's important to do that to keep your relationship healthy and your family healthy. Right. So again, there are about a dozen family guidelines, but I would really strongly recommend getting a hold of those. And again, NAMI is a good source, but it really helps families cope. Yeah. And I do want to say this. There's been a ton of research on helping families help their loved ones. And what that research shows is that this type of treatment, which is called family psychoeducation, that, that's what mental health professionals call it, helping families help their loved ones, that is just as effective as medications. It actually cuts the rate of psychotic episodes in half. So working with families helps the families, but it also helps the people that are dealing with psychosis. Wow. That's some great advice. You know, one thing we haven't discussed at all is how long a psychosis may last. I know that this person I'm referring to who I was uh, engaging with the past you know, six months, it was at least a, a three-month episode, I believe. Yes. So for most people with psychotic disorders, they're relapsing and remitting, which means that for most people, they'll have an episode of psychosis and then it will go away. And then they'll have another episode of psychosis and then it'll go away. Those episodes of psychosis... It really depends on two things. One is, how effective is that person's coping? Because remember, when you start not feeling well, most people don't call the doctor. They try to cope with it themselves. So how effective is their personal coping? And if they're in treatment, how effective is the treatment? So in a good situation where somebody's illness is very medication responsive or they're very engaged in CBT or effective therapy, or they're coping really effectively. I've seen episodes of psychosis clear within a few days, within three days. So it can be that short. Wow. On the other end, if somebody's psychosis is not responsive to treatment and or the coping is ineffective uh, or uh, they're continuing to fuel their psychosis by also taking drugs. And often that's an attempt to self-medicate, right. but it can make things worse. Or In stopping those, medication. Yes, or stopping medication. Yep, uh, that's you know very common when people are doing well to stop their medications. But if those risk factors line up, like stopping medicine or the medicine's not working, they're using maladaptive coping skills like drinking more or using more drugs. Um, then 
the psychosis can go on for months. I've seen people with what we would call a chronic active psychosis that's gone on for years. So it really, there's no average amount of time that a psychotic episode lasts. It can be very short. It can be middle. It can be very long. It, it boils right. down to how effective is your coping? How effective is your treatment? Right. Right. So I think this might be one of my last questions. I'm curious about as far as treatment, you've mentioned the antipsychotics. I know you've mentioned CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. I'm wondering, is there anything on the forefront? What is, is there anything more with research, any cutting edge types of treatment? I know like, for example, I can mention some lesser known, it seems like treatments that aren't necessarily new for depression. Like not everybody has heard of TMS, transcranial mag magnetic stimulation, things like that. And, uh, you know, now um, ketamine being out for depression is there more anything such as that reaching the cutting edge for as far as psychotic um, episodes and treating yeah, psychosis? Yeah, absolutely. There's a very active uh, area of research which is looking at novel uh, treatments for psychosis, uh, because as I mentioned, the current medications that we have for some people they're very effective. For some people, they're completely ineffective. So right now, one of the most active areas of research is looking at treatments that involve different neurotransmitter systems. Most of the treatments today uh, involve dopamine or serotonin or cholinergic systems. But as I mentioned earlier, there are hundreds of other neurotransmitters which are involved in human behavior and probably in, in what we call mental illness. And so without boring you with the list, I'll just simply say that there are a number of medications which are being studied through uh, the Food and Drug Administration um, to combat psychosis. It's, unfortunately, it's a long road for a medication to go from the laboratory to the point where it can be sold to the public. Uh, often uh, it's a period of roughly five to 10 years. So any discoveries, um, they're kind of coming down the pipeline slowly. Um, so far, all of the medications which treat psychosis, or almost all, 99%, are medications which involve the neurotransmitter dopamine. So these are drugs that affect dopamine receptors in particular ways. But you still got that 25% that don't respond to those medicines. So they probably have non-dopaminergic psychoses that might involve uh, glutamate systems uh, or other neurotransmitter systems. So those are being actively researched. But one point I do want to make uh, before we wrap up is when I'm teaching uh, medical students or residents, I will tell them that in my opinion, there have only been two breakthroughs in the pharmacotherapy of schizophrenia. One was in the 1950s with the discovery of the first antipsychotic drug, which was called chlorpromazine. And the second was in the 1980s 
with the discovery of clozapine, which is a medicine which often works when other medicines don't. But that's been only two breakthroughs in 50 or 60 years. On the other hand, if you look at non-medication treatments for people with psychotic disorders, there have been several breakthroughs in the same period of time. So we already talked about cognitive behavioral therapy, which has been shown to be effective for depression and psychosis. There are also um, treatments like supported employment. Um, we know that many people, whether you have a mental illness or not, they want to work. And in the United States, you sort of are what you do. So having a job is important. And a lot of research has shown the most effective ways to help people succeed in paid competitive employment. That's actually been studied. Family psychoeducation, I mentioned earlier, is a way to help families help families. There's also integrated dual diagnosis treatment, which is a way of treating both addiction and psychosis at the same time. And then most excitingly, across the United States, there are a number of new first episode programs which have opened for people that have had that first episode of psychosis. They may or may not need antipsychotic medications, but they sure need other services because they've just had their life blown out of the water by psychosis. So these first episode programs have been emerging across the United States. And at the very cutting edge are programs which are trying to prevent psychosis. Ideally, in the future, I'd love to see a vaccine which would prevent psychosis, whether people would take it or not, perhaps is another story. But there is a lot of research now in identifying people that are at risk for psychosis. And there are certain formulas that are being used that look at things like, we know that there is a genetic component to psychosis. So is there a family history of psychosis? Are there any behavioral changes which suggest that somebody might be vulnerable? Have they been exposed to any environmental um, pathogens or insults which could increase the risk of psychosis? So these programs are taking young people that are at risk for psychosis and starting to provide support and education in an attempt to prevent the onset of psychosis. So it's not quite as nifty as a vaccine but it holds the hope of prevention. So in addition to drug studies looking at various neurotransmitters, and also you mentioned transcranial magnetic stimulation, in addition to those new treatments, there's a hope of preventing psychosis. That's the holy grail. Yeah, that's awesome. Any, uh, you know, I've, I had a researcher on the show who has, discovered one single biomarker in a simple blood test to actually diagnose depression and down the line hopefully be able to even distinguish between bipolar and unipolar depression and be able to to identify whether or not somebody has bipolar disorder any as well as to check on the efficacy of a medication because with antidepressants it's this you know, a guessing game and waiting four to six weeks to see whether or not it works before you try another one. Any type of blood studies to help with the diagnosis of schizophrenia? So not yet, but you've just touched on a very exciting area of research called pharmacogenomics. So for instance, if I were to go to the emergency room with a bad cough, you know, they would do a a throat swab, 
They would isolate the bacteria and they would give me the right antibiotic. That's what we want to be able to do with psychotic disorders. We want to be able to test in, or with depression or bipolar disorder. We want to be able to do a test which, based on a genetic analysis, will tell us which medication this person is likely to respond to. Because right now, as you probably know, Al, finding the right medication is simply trial and error, which is a long and frustrating process. But this field of pharmacogenomics holds out hope that as we begin to understand the biological basis of these disorders and begin to identify individual biotypes of these disorders, as we begin to identify those, we may do a much better job at determining upfront what medication this person needs as opposed to having to go through trial and error. We're not there yet. We don't have a genetic analysis or assay or blood test which will tell us, well, this person with schizophrenia is not going to respond to standard medicines. They need clozapine. Or this person with depression doesn't need an SSRI. They need an SNRI. We're not there yet, but we're getting closer. Right, right. Wow, what a, a fascinating topic. Before we sign off, you know, the question I ask everybody on the show, whether they've shared a lived story or whether I'm speaking with a researcher is, you know, you've talked a lot about ways to treat and support one dealing with psychotic episodes, but I'm wondering if you have advice. If somebody is listening to this show, what's your one big piece of advice you would give them? Maybe it's somebody who's experienced something that they aren't really sure what it was and maybe... Maybe they have an inkling that maybe it was a psychotic episode. What, what advice would you give them or a loved one? Yeah, my first advice would be don't give up hope. Okay. When studies have been done of people who have serious mental illness, who have recovered and have gone on to get MDs or PhDs or do right. wonderful things, when they ask those people, hey, how did you go from, you know, being locked up, you know, in a, in a psychiatric hospital to now being in charge of, you know, the mental health system for your state. How did that happen? What they'll often say is because when I was at my low point, there was somebody who didn't give up on me. There was somebody who gave me hope, who helped me kind of not give up. So I think that's my first advice is, is don't give up hope right. when you're experiencing a depression or a psychosis. It can feel like your world is coming to an end but it's not. Yeah. These are treatable conditions and many people can learn to live personally meaningful lives in spite of the illness. So that's yeah. number one. And, and I think number two is don't be afraid to reach out for help. I know that mental illness is stigmatized. People that suffer from it are stigmatized. And unfortunately, people that treat it are, are stigmatized. So, you know, there's sort of a, a lot of, of, of mistrust, but my advice would be give it a try. You have you know, nothing to lose. Treatment may be helpful for you. It may not. But try for yourself. Uh, you, know, you may have a friend who was helped by treatment. You may have a friend who was not helped by treatment. Well, the person may be a friend, but the person's not you. So go see for yourself. I think those would be my advice. Yeah, that's awesome. Thank you so much. Well, Dr. Lamberti, I want to thank you so much. Thank you for the work you're doing, first of all. I mean, it's amazing work. 
And I really want to thank you very much for taking uh, such time with me to be on The Depression Files. Well, thank you, Al. It's been my pleasure, and I'm likewise a fan of your work. Your sharing lived experience is a factor which is fighting stigma, and the more we can fight stigma, I think the more we can promote recovery. So thank you for this invitation and for everything that you're doing. All right. Well, awesome. Thank you so much once again, and uh, make sure you stay healthy. Thank you, and you as well. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to The Depression Files. If you've enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave a rating and review. This is one small way that would help me out greatly. Please know that if you are currently suffering from depression and are experiencing thoughts of suicide, please reach out for help. In the U.S., you can call, text, or chat 988 to connect with a trained crisis counselor, or you can visit suicide.org slash suicide dash hotlines for a list of international suicide hotlines. If you would like to connect directly with me or have a topic to suggest, please reach out to me on Twitter at allevin18 or email me at thedepressionfiles at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening to The Depression Files.